Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C E N T R A L A S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Tom Plocker. Tom has been growing and breeding grapevines and making wine from them since 1980. He was a longtime friend and mentee of Elmer Swenson and lives and grows grapes in Minnesota, just north of the Twin Cities. Tom has bred several varieties of grapes that are patented and available for sale out in the world if you want to get some. And you've heard about at least one of them if you've been listening to this podcast, Petite Pearl on a recent episode with Montpelier Vineyards in Vermont. In this interview, Tom gives us detailed instructions about how to breed grapevines with some amazing tips and an in-depth sense of what is involved. While Tom isn't focused on breeding for resistance to mildew or pests, what he's doing and what he teaches us in this episode may be some of the most valuable information I've ever shared on this podcast, with no disrespect meant to all of my wonderful guests who have been on here before. Because learning to breed grapevines is what will make it possible to adapt to the rapidly changing climate and find a delicious future for wine that doesn't require the unsustainable use of chemical sprays. Tom literally shows us the path to the future of wine, and that it's something you can do with some intelligence, patience, and care on your own without a lot of land. Here's a fun fact. The time it takes to research, develop, test, and get approvals of new chemical pesticides is about 10 years. The time it takes to breed, grow, prove out, and patent a new variety of grapevine that could have any number of beneficial traits, including a diminished need for new pesticides, is about 10 years. Forget the fact that the development of the pesticide took millions of dollars, too, and that breeding the grape just took time and some knowledge and practice. Imagine if all of us who grow vineyards also began collecting, crossing, and breeding new vines. Imagine where we'd be if we channeled our resources over the last 80 years into this approach to resilience and vitality in our vineyards, rather than trying to prop up a handful of increasingly more feeble grapevines with the ongoing development of chemicals that degrade our environment and make climate change and human health worse. Think of how much further along we'd be to having real solutions to viticultural challenges by looking in the vines themselves. It is both possible and 100% achievable to have delicious wine made from grapes that never need to be sprayed with anything and thrive in the extreme climate that will be our future. But not as long as we fetishize and clone the same vines over and over again. If we take the knowledge that Tom gives us here and apply it to the California wine industry alone, we could have a continually renewing, regenerating, and improving cycle of increasing health and flavor in our wine and our world. 
rather than this downward spiral we're on that has an expiration date. The only thing standing in our way, I believe, is prejudice. We've created a hierarchy in which a few types of grapes, and only those few select grapes, can make great wine. That hierarchy is bullshit. All grapes are hybrids. I hope you'll join with me in normalizing the idea that wine is not made from a few European grapes, but from an ongoing process of adaptation, innovation, experimentation, and inclusion. If you do, I think the future of wine can be exciting. It can be diverse. It can be delicious. In this interview, Tom gives us the tools to get there. Enjoy. Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, always, always like a chance to talk about grapes. Hey, all right. Well, it sounds like they have been your life for quite some time. <laughs> um, would you be willing to just sort of lay out what, what, how you got into what you're doing? Like, what, how, how, what led you on this path? Oh well, um, um, I've been growing grapes here in Minnesota since uh, about 1980. No, 1979, 1980. Um, and back then, we didn't really have many options uh, to growing French hybrid vines and burying them over the wintertime, um, which mm. meant uh, most of us had really small vineyards because that's really <laughs> awful work in November <laughs> to be doing that and digging them up in April. That's even worse. Um, um, uh, but uh, meanwhile, there, there were a number of people who were trying to breed hardier grapes um, all along. Elmer Swenson, who was my, really my mentor and really close friend um, for many years, um, uh, is probably the most famous uh, grape breeder from this area. Technically, he lived across the river in Wisconsin, but, um, but he was more a part of the Minnesota um, community, I think. Um, so he, mm -hmm. he bred cold hardy grapes for about 50 years, starting way back in the 19, geez, the 1940s and 50s. Um, wow. um, and just died in, uh, 2005, I think is when Elmer died. Um, wow. um, so he, he was kind of the first one to really come out with, um, some fairly good quality grapes that were fairly winter hardy here. Uh, there were two whites, St. Pepin and Lacrosse. Um, and then, uh, oh, oh, oh Lacrosse. Uh, Lacrosse. Yeah. Lacrosse like is in Lacrosse, Wisconsin. Um, and then, um, uh, a, a red wine grape called St. Croix, uh, named after okay. the St. Croix River where he lived. Um, uh, and so they were... Are these... They were, oh, go ahead. Are, are these still in use popularly? Um, they sound familiar to me. Um, the cross especially. In, they are in, in places. They have their kind of their niches. So uh, okay. there's quite a bit of St. Croix growing in New England. Um, um, not much here anymore. Um, uh, there's quite a bit of St. Pepin growing um in places like iowa and wisconsin um wollersheim winery in in prairie du sac wisconsin near madison there um okay. makes really outstanding ice wine from saint pepin and they sell it for mm. about 50 dollars a half bottle um mm. so they like their saint pepin um, <laughs> um it, it yeah so it's a it's a kind yep. of a um, uh kind of a flowery fruity um white wine um, and the grape has low enough acid you can finish the wine dry which most mm -hmm. grapes here can't it can't be finished dry 
um, because the acid's so because high, acid. it gets yeah. It's just, just, it's just uh, a little. It needs just a little bit of sugar to offset the acid. Got um, it. And lacrosse is still growing a lot um, in places with a little hotter and longer growing season, like it's uh, Nebraska. It's real popular in Nebraska. Okay. Um, um, uh, yeah. So, oh, and Edelweiss. I forgot to mention Edelweiss. Oh yeah, that's, I've definitely heard another of that. white white uh, uh, grape of his. That was one of his very early ones from the seventies. Um, that is the um, most widely grown uh, grape for white wine in Nebraska, and they okay. make it in all different styles. It's, I've definitely heard of it in the on the East Coast too, in New England. Yeah. Yes, that's sure. right. They grow it in New England too. It's it's not quite hardy enough for Minnesota. Um, reliably, but for those areas that are maybe in uh, a climate zone milder in the winter time, uh, it fits that niche really well. Um, and then Elmer went on to, um, you know, through the '90s, uh, he introduced a, um, a bunch of other grapes um, um, uh, that for for wine that were, uh, um, you know, more or less uh, widely, re, you know, accepted, you know, in in this area. Um, yeah. Uh, but, so he was kind of the first. Um, uh, but meanwhile, um, uh, going way back into the like the early '70s, um, there was a small initiative that started at the University of Minnesota um, Horticulture Research Center um, uh, under Professor um, Cecil Stushnoff uh, and a graduate student named Patrick Piarki, who was working on his master's degree there. And um, so they decided that they were going to start uh, a whole new line of Cold hardy grape breeding, using um, the hardiest native grapes they could find in this area. Um, so they they would go canoeing on the Minnesota River and in the fall and uh, look for wild grapes growing on the islands in the river. Um, and they look for, were looking for ones that had especially big clusters because those it's that it's called a vitis riparia is the wild grape and. It's notorious yeah. for having teeny tiny berries and clusters. Um, so they were looking for bigger ones. Um, so they got one really good selection called Riparia 89 that they used a lot in starting their line of breeding. And then they also got two from uh, Manitoba, from the very northern range of that native species. Um, um, they got it is in Riding Mountain Provincial Park, which is about 400 miles northwest of Winnipeg. <laughs> um so those guys, you know, really kind of, kind of laid the groundwork for for all the work that the University of Minnesota carried on and is and is still doing, you know, to this day. Wow, um, okay. And those riparias found their way, of course, to Elmer Swenson as well, and got incorporated into his work, and then they got incorporated into my work. Um, so I think just about all our all our contemporary cold hardy grapes here um, have either the Manitoba riparia or the um, Minnesota River riparia in their background somewhere. Mm. Um, and the Manitoba riparias are especially interesting because um, they're sensitive to day length. And when you hit about August 20th here, uh, the days, you know, we're far enough north. We're right on the 45th parallel here. Uh, the days definitely start getting shorter. I mean, I don't really notice it, but these wild grapes from Manitoba notice it. And they start hardening <laughs> off and start um, getting ready for the winter. Um, and huh. so I see that trait in some of my um, varieties too. A, a crimson pearl is it's really prominent in my crimson pearl variety. That usually hardens off their shoot. It shoots completely all the way to the very tip of the shoot uh, by the time the fruit is ripened and ready to harvest. 
and sometimes a little wow. bit before. Um, so, um, wow. yeah, so there's, there's kind of this whole lineage here. Uh, yeah. But those are kind of the two main groups, the university group okay. and Elmer Swenson. Um, now, and I, I yeah, got no. to know people in both places. Um, um, Peter Hempstead was hired in 1983 or 84 um, at, by the University of Minnesota to be a full-time grape breeder. So the, what the graduate student and Cecil had started had, had progressed to a point where they, the university decided they wanted to do this long-term and, and they could afford to hire a full-time person to do it. Um, so Peter went on and uh, made a selection from the seedlings that Patrick had produced, um, and that got named Frontenac. And you probably heard of Frontenac. Frontenac sure. Grape. Yeah. And then Frontenac mutated out there, and they got a Frontenac Gris, and then Frontenac Gris mutated in, into a white grape, and they got Frontenac Blanc. So they got three out of that <laughs> <laughs> for for the price yeah. of just making one F1 cross. It, so that was that was extremely lucky. Um, <laughs> um, they then went on and bred Marquette and uh, um, La Crescent, and most recently Itasca, they really, which is a white grape they released right. two years ago. Yes, so all of those are, are I, I know, well, they're definitely familiar to me, and I know definitely in use uh, on the East Coast and, and send, yeah, every, everywhere around you, I'm sure, as well. Yeah. Um, I want, let me go back to what got you started. Why did you, why were you even growing grapes to begin with? Oh, did you, well, um, so for until, until about 2011, I actually worked in the tech, tech industry because grape, private grape breeding is not a way to actually pay your bills and, and live a, live a normal life. Um, <laughs> um, because the payoff comes when you actually license a nursery, um, to, uh, to, to, produce your vines from your varieties and, and, and then you get patent royalties from, um, but that's 10 or 12 years or more. So I, right. I work full time in the tech industry and, and, uh, one of my, one of my first jobs was, um, uh, I got to spend a lot of time in Germany for a couple of years. Um, and I was really lucky to be stationed around Hanau near Frankfurt. So when I had time off, um, I just, drove on over to the Mosul and the Rhine, which wasn't very far away, and and um, really enjoyed. Probably a nice drive too. A really gorgeous drive, and I just got I just got completely enthralled with with the vineyards and scenery and and the wine culture there that was so embedded in in their local culture. Um, so I came back and planted a few grapevines in my backyard, um, and uh, um, joined the Minnesota Grape Growers Association, which had about 40 members at that time, and um, everyone knew everyone else. And that's where I met Elmer Swenson. Uh, he would come to the come to the meeting. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got involved in it. And, got it. And, and that was back in the 70s, 80s. That's yeah, that was the you... early, early 1980s. So I started a so it was, my own, and then I, I got involved with um, in starting uh, uh, a winery cooperative here. Um, there, there was... It got to a point in about 1982 where there was only one commercial winery in Minnesota. Um, and so okay. they took that as an opportunity to um, screw the price of grapes down on people. <laughs> um, and people got tired of that because it was, that's back when, when we were burying grapes still for the most part. And so right. there's an enormous amount of work that went into these grapes and they were paying them like 20 cents a pound or something for them. And so, um, so 
uh, a, a, a group of those growers got together and started the Minnesota Wine Growers Cooperative, which is just set up as a legal farm, farmer's cooperative. Um, and uh, so that's where they, they would sell their grapes to the cooperative, where they, where they would get paid fairly and they would get an annual dividend depending on the wine sales. And we bought out the equipment from a winery that had ceased to operate. So we kind of moved that all to uh, Stillwater, Minnesota, which is a big tourist town on the St. Croix River here near the Twin Cities. Um, and that winery operated as a cooperative until just last year. So, so it was about 40 oh, years. Wow. A long time. Wow. Uh, and the last winemaker, when he retired, was one of the original members of the co-op. So... That was turned out to be um, <laughs> turned out to be uh, a, kind of a bigger success than I think any of us thought thought it would ever be because <laughs> starting it was such a struggle. Um, we thought mm. it was going to go under quite a few times there. Um, so I got involved in that, and um, through that I also learned you know learned a lot about learned a lot about the wine business because one of my jobs that I volunteered for was to go around to bars and restaurants and, and try to sell them the wine. Um, and back in that time, no one had tasted Minnesota wine, and uh, and a lot of them weren't real inclined to. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of right. a lot of bias to deal with. <laughs> I learned I learned to be thick skinned about it. Um, I learned a lot about mm. the wine business, and and I uh, learned a lot about grape growing from just from uh, associating with all those people who had who had more experience than I did. Um, and um, so, so you, I, yeah. oh, go ahead. You always had an interest in in making wine from the grapes. It wasn't just mm-hmm. purely a like like a horticultural fascination. Yeah, um, it was kind of it was kind of both. But I really love the winemaking, and I still do. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so kind of what I so what I did for about ten or twelve years, kind of through the nineties, was just accumulate a really big collection. Of grape varieties um, here at the farm in Hugo, and I don't know. I probably had over the years. I probably had two hundred different varieties there. Uh, a lot of them were from Elmer Swenson. There were a few Minnesota ones, University of Minnesota ones. Um, a lot of French hybrids, uh, and I made wine from all of them. So I I really got got to deeply know what their value was for wine. And so there were some French hybrids that weren't nearly hardy enough here. But mm. um, they made really terrific white wine, and I thought this is you know I got to get I got to get this into my breeding someday because uh, as one of the quality parents in, in a cross a lot of t- a lot of times in our crossing here in the first generation we'll we'll cross um, something super hardy something that survived forty below zero here with um, uh, with a much less hardy variety that has really good quality for wine. Uh, and you end Got up it. with a lot of progeny in between somewhere. <laughs> and it often takes a second generation of breeding to, to really get what you want. But that's up often a, our first step here. And um, so, yeah, so I, well, I always thought the winemaking was really worth it because, um, I, I, you know, I always like to say that, you know, I've never, I've, I've never made a cross from anything. I either haven't tasted the wine from or made the wine. Oh, wow. I, I, that's not a hundred percent accurate anymore because um, you know I've kind of I've kind of borrowed in my breeding varieties from all over the place, but um, that's that's about ninety percent the case still. Got it. Uh, and there's some well, things that I made wine from that that I would I would just think there is no way I I would ever have have these genes in my breeding because the wine 
has some big er, er, aroma flaw or acidity flaw or something like that that would just right. be really really hard to bury even in right. two or three generations right right like you could do it but uh you only have so much time on earth <laughs> to get through this right and there must be easier paths here <laughs> um now where are you in minnesota are you what's what's the big communities near you are there any big communities near uh, you? uh the only hugo is the only community near me hugo is about five miles west of me and uh um hugo is about 30 minutes from downtown st paul and about 35 minutes from downtown minneapolis because the freeway once runs through there uh, okay so you're you're closer to like the dakota border oh no i'm really close to wisconsin um Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm gotcha, only gotcha. about ten miles, ten miles west of, of the Saint Croix River, and the which is the boundary between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's um, an odd area here, um, um, because uh, just because of the local topography, um, um, the winters here are really, really cold. And typically, our t- winter temperatures every day are, you know, anywhere from six to nine or ten degrees colder than the airport in the twin cities than twin cities international airport um oh, interesting um because we don't we're far enough out that we don't get any of the heat from the city um and uh as you get north north and east of the twin cities um uh, you really do enter a different uh cli- usda climate zone um, so my winter cold is is very similar to places like fargo um Gotcha. Which is a four-hour well, drive yeah. from here to the northwest, but uh, I'm kind of up in that up in that zone, which makes it a really good place to develop cold-hardy grapes. Because uh, even yeah. even in this era of climate change, um, you know, every four or five years we just get some zinger of a winter. Like twenty in January 2019, it was minus 38. The air temperature that was not the wind chill. The air temperature was minus 38. Uh, in on um, in one part of my vineyard, and I hit you know minus forty in another part of my vineyard. Uh, oh, yeah, it got rid yeah. of the Japanese beetles. I'll tell you that <laughs> there were none yeah. all week summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. I yeah, I, I I I went to University of Iowa, so I spent oh. four years uh, getting a little dose of the Midwestern extremes of winter and summer heat, um, uh, which was lovely, and the the big storms, the blizzards, and the you know tornadoes and everything else, <laughs> um, and then yeah, I I interviewed uh, a, a a guy who's growing. You might know of him. He's growing an all riparia vineyard in Fargo, just south of Fargo. Oh um, my gosh! Oh, I oh Kessel I yeah. Ring, yeah, I Kessel Ring vineyards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jason um, Ketterling, Kettering. Yeah, yeah, Jason Kettering. Yeah, yeah. I see Jason regularly because um he he has a house in in st paul uh and kind of commutes back and forth to fargo so whenever right. i want yeah. to send wine or or vines or something up to fargo um jason takes them for me oh great and sometimes he brings <laughs> wine back for me too which is nice, uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm, I'm looking never forward to trying some of his area i'd like to do that yeah, it. I mean, it's fascinating to me for sure because it seems like you know what we would have done in a pre-industrial world. You know, just sort of naturally is just grabbing the vines that we found and trying yeah. to propagate them. You know. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, I'm very fascinated. It sounds like breeding was always 
part of what you were doing or at least on your mind when you were growing grapes was that is that is something is is that sort of like you know if you grow up in minnesota you better be thinking about that or is that just particular to you <laughs> no i i i think um um i think that quite a few quite a few growers think about that um mm-hmm. um but they you know but um i mean kind of the reality is that it's um it's it's really really technical and really time consuming um in terms of um when you have to do things um and uh-huh. uh, and it's different you can't schedule it much ahead of time it just depends on the temperature almost entirely on the temperature uh-huh. um uh, so you really have to be in your you know in your vineyard daily and monitoring yeah ab- absolutely yeah um yeah because so- it's very easy to uh, it's just very easy to miss a vine that starts blooming you know they may only be blooming for four days and and wow. you, you know yeah. if you go out there a day too late um the berries are set already and you're out of luck you wait till next year to use that one so well okay so could you could you explain how you breed a grapevine sure um <laughs> i mean and i i, I guess are there two different kinds of breeding whether you're dealing with a hermaphroditic vine versus a sexed vine uh, i mean these are you know consider me just a total ignoramus about this oh I'm oh curious yeah yeah so from the very get-go uh, yeah so gra- grapes you're right grapes are either male or female or hermaphroditic um the i mean the easy ones to work with are, are females because um um they don't have any pollen anthers to deal with you just you can just um you know bag them before the flowers open and then when the caps start coming off every day you just go put pollen on them whatever pollen you want to pollinate them with um and bag them up and and you usually get a really big set of seeds from it um you know the problem is um uh half of the seeds are going to grow more female vines (laughs) so so um and that's kind it's kind of hard to market female vines um so we're really looking more for um selections that are hermaphrodites because they pollinate themselves you know they don't need right. another variety to pollinate them um so i work mostly with hermaphrodites and so the process for breeding process starts with um waiting until until you start seeing some of the caps pop off the flowers um uh, and then you go in with the tweezers and pick off the ones that are opened already um and then either with your fingertips or tweezers you you pull the caps off all the rest of the flowers in, in that in that inflorescence or flower bunch. Um, um, and the trick is, to, as you pull the cap off, to also pull the anthers off. So you end up with essentially a female flower, if you do that correctly. Um, okay. And then you go through the whole the whole flower cluster and do that. Um, and then, wow. And then pollinate it and bag it. I usually go back, I usually try to go back three days in a row, um, and pollinate because you know even though you maybe successfully pulled all the caps off and the ant pulled off the anthers um it doesn't necessarily mean all the flowers are receptive to pollinating at the at the same time they tend to um there are flowers that that become receptive over over a three-day period not all at once so it's usually i usually get better better berry set and seed production if i take the time to go back repeatedly um so so in other words, like if you had, if you're crossing two hermaphroditic vines, you're taking the, the cap and, and anthers off one and adding it to the other. 
where you've also removed the cabinanthers. Yeah, or I actually just um, um, uh, just uh, bag just the, the, the whoever the pollen donor is going to be. I um, you know I bag it and and then um, and usually just go through and and collect the pollen anthers after the caps caps pop off and uh, dry them and then grind them up um, into a powder and then just use that powder um, as 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 my pollen yeah and that that works pretty good Um, and then so so that's where you're going back to the one where you've you've created essentially a female out of a hermaphrodite by removing it and and then putting that pollen onto those Mm -hmm. flowers yep the process is the same just a plastic bag is what you're bagging with. Is that what you're talking I about? I use I use those, um, uh, you know, those brown paper bags that are kind of lined with a little bit of a little bit of cellophane that you get coffee beans in. Oh yeah, and they have that metallic strip on top that you fold over yeah. and bend around to close it. Those those make really good pollination bags um, because oh, they nice. can take a lot. They can take a real beating in the wind and the rain, and they get rained on and they dry out right away and. Um, they're really durable. They'll they last the whole summer. So I I leave them on the whole summer. Um, okay. Until probably until the first of October. Um, you know, just because if I took them off, then you know I'd worry about the birds eating the eating the grapes or. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Um, so I just let them ripen until the normal harvest time, and um, and then pick the clusters and extract the seeds from the berries, um, uh, clean the seeds and dry them out and. Uh, they usually just sit dry until Thanksgiving time or so, um, and that's when I will uh, put them through a soaking and cleaning treatment and um, sterilizing treatment. So sterilizing against against, against mildew and fungus. Got it. Right. Yeah. Not, not sterilizing pack, the seed. It's yeah. Not. <laughs> then I pack them in damp peat moss and plastic Ziploc bags, and and you know put them in the back of the refrigerator at about you know thirty three degrees let them sit for 90 days so that's usually early march and uh take them out and and plant them and and, uh, i I, um force their growth under uh um, led lights with you know with some nice bottom heat and you know usually get pretty good germination in you know in about two weeks something like that okay so i end up with these i end up with these um seedling trays of little grapevines um that um when they're about Oh, when they're about three inches tall, um, they've kind of run out of room in that tray, so you have to you have to transplant them into their own liner pots. Okay. Uh, and then they go back under the lights in their liner pots, and by the time I move them outdoors, you know they're usually ten or twelve inches high, and then they get moved out to the vineyard right away. I, I don't put them in a I don't put them in a nursery. Um, I usually, if they're healthy and vigorous, I put them out in the vine. Okay. Kind of avoids that additional step of having to dig them up out of a nursery and disturbing them a second time just to move them to the vineyard. So, yeah, I don't do that. So kind of the nursery step is actually is actually done in the vineyard. And how do you protect them then once they're in the vineyard? Because I imagine you have, you know, deer and rabbits and everything else that might munch on them. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, they're in grow <laughs> tubes. Um, I use those pink grow tubes on them. Um, okay. Just, how high do you, how long, how tall of a grow tube? 30 inches. Just a quick note here to say that Tom checked his facts after the interview and said his grow tubes are 24 inches, not 30. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they usually by you know by the middle of August they'll they'll all be out out the top of those tubes and and uh, you know then I have to start spraying them with a deer repellent because the, you know the deer see those little 
tender little shoots coming out the top of the shoe. <laughs> it's just like it's just like seeing candy. They go along, clip them all off. <laughs> right. It's their favorite food. Um, now, what's it? I, this is the first time somebody's brought up a, a sprayed deer repellent. What do you know? What that is? Like, what is it? What are the ingredients in that? Oh, it's um, it's uh, it's like, an ammonia compound. It smells like, like a wolf yeah. urine. Yeah, it's supposed to Got smell it. like um, well, I think like um dog dog urine or wolf urine or something coyote urine something that they're afraid of oh. uh, yeah yeah it works Fascinating. It's, it's really good it's just you know if you get a really hard rain it, you have to reapply it but it works really right, good. right. It kind of um it, you can tell it kind of changes it kind of changes the way they the route they walk when they come through our place here they, they definitely change their route and, and go around and as does that as mean you're not that. Does that mean you don't have to put up a bunch of fencing? Well, uh, I don't know. Fencing is fencing is really expensive, so I never really, I never really did it. Um, uh-huh. uh, so I just and you've had no problems or yeah, minimal, really enough problems. problems. I just have to, um, I just have to be be persistent and and keep the repellent on. Huh. It's a pretty quick and quick thing to do. Um, I use Hinder, which goes into solution really well, and uh, you don't need to cover the whole plant. All you need to do is just give it a little, give uh, you know the growing tip a little, little squirt of it, and because that's what they want to eat anyway. They get one a whiff of that when they walk up. They eat that tip, and 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 they move on. Um, huh. Yeah, so it maybe takes me and maybe an hour and a half to do the whole place. Um, that's fantastic. Is it now? I'm just, this is, you know, riffing on this idea, but could you just spray a perimeter of that around them rather than spray each vine and then they wouldn't even enter the vineyard? I have kind of worried or, or about you... that. I, I mean, a few times uh, when I, when I have, when I had a spray, but I almost had no hinder left in the, in the container, I sprayed, uh-huh. I sprayed across the ends of the rows. Um, and I think it was a little inconclusive. I think I, some of them did come in, but I think it probably had some effect too. Right. Yeah. So hinder is the name of this deer repellent. Yeah. That's an ammonia compound. The okay. That one. Then there's another one from Sweden called Plant Skid S K Y D, and that one is okay. Made, that one's made from rabbit's blood. Um. And oh boy, it's fairly disgusting to use. <laughs> and, it, nope. and it clogs up the sprayer nozzle. But um, um, what is the theory behind that? Um. I'm I'm not quite sure. Just, it's like, so gross that anything is repelled it, from it. It definitely like, repels rabbits too. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> but, it, wow. but it attracts dogs, oddly enough. So when I, oh boy, I used to use that one up until two years ago, and I got tired of it of mixing it, and and so I would I would walk be walking down the rows, squirting this on the on the vines, and my dog would follow behind me, and he would. <laughs> He would put his He's like licking it off all, as you go. Kept all the drips. He would, he would lick all the drips that rolled off the leaves. And then when I was mixing oh. it, I, I, one time I, I I had to run in the house or something, and I came back out, and he was drinking it out of the bucket. He was just disgusted <laughs> with that stuff. Oh man! Almost as good as killing your own rabbit. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Well, um, okay. Well, this is fascinating. So, I, I, I mean, I thank you for sort of breaking down the breeding aspect. It does, yeah. I mean, if anybody has not looked at a grape flower, what you just described may not 
seem that difficult, but <laughs> if once you get into looking at grape flowers um, and a little more closely, you'll be like, what the heck? How do I do what? Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty detailed tweezer work. It sounds like, yeah, it, it, what you do discover is that, um, the size of the flower varies a lot, uh, across varieties. Uh-huh. Uh, there are some that I, some varieties that I, I will never use for anything but a pollen parent because the flowers are so small. I uh-huh. just can't imagine trying to, trying to pick the anthers off. Oh, wow. And, and so you have to do that with every flower on that cluster of flowers right yep you do because um otherwise otherwise there's probably going to be some self-pollination if you left some unopened um when that cap pops off it scatters pollen from the anthers and and chances are pretty good it's gonna hit one of the flowers you've emasculated um wow yeah so it's like 75 to 175 probably on depending on the cluster size of the yeah Wow. Yeah. Um, and you have, I'm, I'm sure that you have to be careful about each of those as well. How do you, do you only need one cluster? I mean, I, I'm sure for, in, you know, just to insurance, you need more than one. Is that right? You want to. Yeah. It depends on how much seed I want. Um, um, you know, if right. It's, if it's, if it's a, if it's something that I, where I really want to, I really want a big population of seedlings, um, you know, I'll do. I don't know. I'll do five or six bags, or or even more. Um, especially if it's a small cluster, flower cluster. I'll do uh, I'll do more bags. If it's something with really big clusters, you know, I'll do I'll do less. Okay. Do you? It does this guarantee consistency in the seeds? Because I thought seeds, you know, left to their own devices, sort of each mutated in their own genetic way. Oh well. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, the grapes. Um, uh, grapes are really, really big outbreeders. So, um, um, you know, when you bring these, when you bring these two different varieties, really different varieties together, um, you get a really, a really big scrambling of genes to the extent okay. that, um, every seed is, is going to have a little bit different set of genes. Um, got it. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. You get, a, you get a lot. And to me, the, I mean, all the variability you get in those seedlings, um, is a good thing because it right. it increases your chance of getting a combination. Right. And and so that means then once you you know you plant them out to seedlings and then into you know the into the their grow pots and then out into the vineyard mm-hmm. each one of those you have to watch um cuz any one of them they're all they're all slightly different and any one of them could could end up being you know the the right one the 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 one you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. And how long does it take until you know that? Well, um, um, usually the first 40 below zero winter is pretty telling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I actually kind of look forward to those because it screens out a lot of, a lot of grapes um, right away. Uh, but I also am aware that um, it may be screening out some that are pretty perfect perfectly hardy here except for those extreme winters and they make really good wine so i i usually i mean i of course i i I note that down but i um the survival but um i usually grow those back up again and give them a shot at at making wine um so it takes about you know it's usually about six or seven years when i'm before i'm really done with them and and um I mean, I've been, I've been, I, during that six or seven years, you know, I rogue some out 
and at you know by six or seven years i may have out of out of out of 100 seedlings maybe i have four or five left that i think are worth um um worth propagating uh for a second round of testing um gotcha and that's usually done at um at a commercial winery or um a, a, a lot of my a lot of my selections are are at uh universities that have viticulture programs yeah yeah so that's kind of we call it second testing so that's um right and, and I, I i set up I, when i select something i do it i set up for second testing here in hugo too um because you know i i um because i want to i want to make bigger batches of wine from them uh, right yeah well, and, and that's what I was going to say. It sounds like you're starting with with parent uh, genetics that you know have decent quality at least uh, because and then you can sort of refine the, that quality into and, and look for other characteristics besides just the wine quality. You're looking for that cold hardiness or yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's sort of starting with a baseline. Would you is I'm just going to ask some more you know, sort of uh, real basic questions that just from somebody who doesn't know anything, but is it possible to breed for, like if you do have a female vine, um, you know, so you have sexed vine, is it possible to breed for hermaphroditic growth uh, in the next generation? Oh, yeah. You'll Where get, is that? I mean, you get, you'll get, um, uh, you'll get uh, half females and half hermaphrodites. So if you, whatever you pollinate that with, um, Got it. So if you yep. if you pollinate with a hermaphroditic vine, you're going to get a fifty fifty cross. Yep, you're going to get fifty fifty. Okay, so you can do that. Obviously, okay. Um, nice. Now, and that's a way to like if there's a, a species of vine, like a wild vine or something that you want to, you just like its hardiness and you want to get it into the mix. That would be one way to start getting it into the mix where it's e- a little yeah. easier to to breed in the future. Just yeah, it'll take yeah. a generation. Exactly. Or two. Yeah, because wild grapes are here at least are our our native species here uh, comes in males and females and not hermaphrodites. Right. Um, okay, that's that's what I had heard and that's what I kind of assumed. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay, this is such a great intro to just how to do this and, and hopefully will be helpful to anybody. It, it it does show that there's enormous amount of time that goes into this too. And then I, I guess proving proving out the vine is one thing and then proving out the wine uh, would be a, a second step in that too. And that's kind of what you're, you're talking about as well. Yeah. yeah. So I start, I usually start making wine. Um, the first year uh, a seedling has fruit on it and it doesn't have, doesn't take a lot, you know, if it has, you know, if it has even a pound of fruit, you know, I can make an airplane bottle of wine. Right. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, there are years when I've made, you know, over a hundred of those. Um, and, you know, even with that, making that tiny amount, I mean, you, you learn so much, um, just, um, you know, you, you, you know, run some tests on it and, and just crushing the grapes and tasting the juice and seeing the color and, and the acidity and, and, and smelling it. Um, you know, you just learn so much about the potential of the grape for wine and then you ferment it out and, and, you know, usually, usually we taste those, you know, by November or December, uh, because, you know, an airplane bottle of wine isn't going to age very long. <laughs> Right, right. The smaller they are, the shorter time, shorter time they yes. live and stay healthy. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so we do have how, a bunch of a group of people, you know, are real good wine tasters. So I get together with a couple times during the during the winter and 
and we hack through all those. Huh. Um, you know, and I take that feedback really seriously. It's a real important part of doing this. Yeah. Now, how, I mean, is this like the, the first year that they've been planted that they produce? You know, I mean, I, I, you probably are familiar that like in commercial cycles, we, you know, it, it, the rule is like three years just to where you cut the fruit off just to allow the vine time to establish itself and, you know, give itself to vegetative growth before you let it give energy to reproductive growth. Do you, is that not no, we, an, an impact? Oh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I pretty much follow the same rules. Um, it's, okay. it's usually the fourth year. Um, it's usually the fourth year that um, that they have their first crop. Of, you know, okay. it happens to be something that's really vigorous and, and precocious. You know, sometimes a few. Sometimes I've I've had fruit the third year, but um, it's usually the fourth year. You know that you get a pound or a couple pounds or something like that that you can you know you can really you can really work with. Right. Right. Okay. Nice. That's that's fascinating. All right. And I mean, I guess the other thing that this brings up is, are you organizing? A whole lot of land. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you need a sort of like a grid because every year you're going to be introducing new things, and you sort of have to track them through their growth. Uh, so you know, you have like an expanding vineyard, like a constantly cycling vineyard, uh, at least multiple blocks that you can sort of cycle vines through. And what what do you do with them if they don't work out? If they don't, you know, oh, prove just, out, just pull them out. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. So I, you 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 really hit on something important here about this. I. Um, the piece of land I, I do this on is not all that big. I think it's maybe all on, I don't know, maybe two and a half or three acres. Uh, okay. There are probably a couple thousand of these seedlings on that land because they're planted at close spacing too. They're planted at oh, about just over like 20 inches, 20 or 22 inches apart. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, cause, because I, I figure, um, you know, by the fourth year, some of them are going to start taking themselves out of the picture anyway, and I'm gonna they're going to be pulled out. Or they're going to disappear right. from the winter, um, right. and so the space gradually increases between the vines. Um, not always Got in it. the way you want it to, but um, right, right. <laughs> not always with perfect separation between the vines. But um, it gradually opens up, and so by yeah, by year seven, you know the row is almost empty, um, except for the ones you, you've decided to keep. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. So it is that every year. Sense. It changes. It's um, every year. I. I. I pull vines out and and every year uh new seedlings go in so it's constantly changing got it and and how do you how do you track that is it by by area within like do you have sections sectioned off or do you are you tagging like what's your organization oh, method I, I do um um so i you know i have i have metal tags on everything okay out in the vineyard and then i also keep a keep a plot map you know a digital plot got it and i update okay. that I update that every gotcha. summer, um, uh, and and my numbering scheme for selection numbers um, actually refers to um, the the location in the vineyard of of that selection. Uh, so, um, uh, it, each seedling has a, a block number, a row number, and a seedling position number in the row. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's um, so it's really until easy it gets to go it, find things there. It, ma- it makes it makes a lot of sense. To if if I was a young aspiring vine in your vineyard, my goal would be to to move beyond being numbered 
and be, and to a, a, a achieve a name. Yes. Is that, is that the idea? <laughs> My graduation would be when I get called Petite Pearl. <laughs> yes, that would be your dream. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I and love you that. Would, you would wish that I moved faster than I do. <laughs> And are you trellising? Are is there a trellis that just stays there that you that the that you let these things climb up? Are you staking them? How what's what's that like for oh, well, they, support? Yeah, they're all they're all trained uh, they're all trained uh, to a top wire cordon system on a trellis. Okay. Um, and then they also are, when they're young they have a bamboo stake that supports them too. Okay, and, and so and is that is that a at what height is that top wire cordon? Is that a sixty inch fifty? Yeah, it's a um, it's about five and a half feet here okay yeah got it and do you is there any way to bird net a top wire cordon oh yeah. do you have to do that yeah okay oh and i, I do that i have to do that because i was gonna say is that more like a do... canopy do you just cover the whole vineyard with like a canopy of netting like or how does that work i, I just i just cover row by row um so i just i just roll it out roll out a whole rows worth of netting and and pull it over. Um, okay, and it's so it, it yeah, it's just like a right over the top kind of thing. It's just right like over a the dome top, of and then netting. I go through with clips, and I clip the two sides and edges of the netting together underneath. So there are some birds here um, that um, that somehow know how to go underneath the netting if it's open and climb. Yeah, up the and smart ones. Yeah, come up to where the grapes are. <laughs> yeah yeah i've seen those little guys in mine too <laughs> um, um okay all right well that that okay that's that's super helpful and that's uh the, the top wire cordon what are would you explain why you would use that as opposed to something else and is that based on where you are or yeah what are the advantages disadvantages and reasoning behind that oh okay yeah that's a good question so it's based on um on how on how the majority of these vines like to grow um so okay. these are really different than than vinifera vines you'd see in california which tend to like to grow straight up you know so people okay. grow them on those low wire systems um right and these are just the opposite so um uh on these the shoots want to grow out sideways and hang down um okay so if you put them on a vsp system vertical shoot positioning system like yeah. we use in california um the, the shoots don't grow up. You have to pull them up. Right. And right. Do all this contorting. Every week, you got to go through and pull them up and stuff them through the catch wires, and they then they'll just hang over the catch wires. <laughs> so, um, so if you have if you have the um, if you have the cordons and the fruiting spurs up on on this top wire, um, the buds just grow out and hang down, and and the fruit is right there under that top wire and gets really good exposure to the sun. Because just the shoots are all hanging below it. Um, Got it. Yep. So I and I, you want exposure where you are, as opposed to here we want shade. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Like uh, you know, there you you need it because you're getting you, you get the heat in the summer for sure, but it's not a long summer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Our our summer's definitely over by you know by the first of September, pretty much. Um, right. So we have to get we have to get everything right by the end of September. Because uh, it starts getting the days start getting really short too, and the sun is is noticeably lower in the sky, so the the intensity yeah. of the of of the solar radiation is much less, um, and it just goes downhill 
during the month of September. You can you can just right. you can just feel it happening. Uh, the nights start getting really <laughs> cold, and um, it's you know, you, the degree days really drop off. You know, right. So yeah, so we have to we have to do everything we can to to get them ripe in September. So we pull leaves off too, pull basal basal leaves if they're in the way they're causing shade. Um, and if okay, and, gotcha. Yeah, do what yeah. we can to get them exposed well. Um, have have you noticed any extremities or changes to those patterns in recent years in the the, the weather because of climate change or? Oh my gosh, here um, in the Midwest and I mean I think all the way out to through Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Um, um, I mean, one of the big trends is that we're getting wetter in the summertime, um, mm, which is right. odd because we happen to have a drought going right now. But, right. Um, so we have um, we have more what they call um, heavy rain, heavy rainfalls, mm. which are defined as two inches or more in a 24 hour period. Um, uh-huh. We have 30 or 40 percent more of those than we did, you know, 30 years ago. Um uh-huh. And yeah. and we're tending to get um, rain in in September, um, which is is a really awful thing to deal with um, when you're mm. when you know you're trying to trying to finish off these grapes and get them ripe, and you get two inches of rain and, and mm. you know two inches of rain three days from then, and and the grapes just blow up with all that water and and, right. and um, the pH goes up and the sugar drops down and you kind of have to wait until they can dry out until you, you know, you're, you're hoping you get maybe a good dry sunny week and, and every, the chemistry will go back to normal again. Um, right. And we also have a problem with splitting due to that. Most of the oh, grapes, wow. including mine have rather thin skins. And, you know, when you get, um, when you go from being, you know, from really dry conditions to suddenly, you know, two or three inches of rain, um, um, you know those berries kind of blow up, and um, and if they're thin-skinned, you know they tend to, to split right up by this berry stem. Um, huh. You know, and once that happens, uh, all, there are all kinds of problems that follow. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, fruit flies, Indiger. and then and, and wild yeast gets into those wounds and starts sour rot going. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, and now we kind of know how to treat that once that happens, but um, it you know it, it's still create some quality problems for the grapes sure yeah so, so uh, well that brings up a good thing you say yeah it's just is the is the um the rainfall here yeah okay well and that and that i guess leads into my next question which is are, you know obviously you're going for hardiness cold hardiness has been such an important part of the need it, where you live how how do you take care of the vines otherwise are you looking for vines that don't need to be sprayed for example are they are you, you know, or or minimally sprayed, like what what's that look like in your vineyard, or in your test vineyard, or what and what are you looking for? Yeah, um, um, I I don't, I mean that's not a that's not a characteristic that I specifically breed for, um, but um, I you know I do pay attention to it. Um, if you know the disease resistance is always a little bit of a trade off because if something makes really good wine but you have to spray it a couple extra times during the summer. Um, that's maybe that's a good trade-off, uh, <laughs> you know, considering, uh, considering the importance of wine quality here. Um, you know, if it's this kind of average wine and, and, and it's kind of disease prone, then, then it's not worth, then it's not worth keeping. So right. you have to balance all those things. So, 
the winter hardiness, the extreme winter hardiness is kind of, is important to me because even though statistically our winters are getting warmer, um, it is a statistical thing. And, and we are, we are getting, we seem to be almost more prone to getting these really radical temperature excursions in the wintertime, like the one in January, 2019, where we got 40 below out here. Um, mm. uh, and, and just, um, um, just last year, last February, um, we had 32 below zero here on the 15th of February, which is really late to be getting that kind of cold. Um, and, wow. and then spring came, you know, uh, so our <laughs> weather is getting really, really erratic and really, we're getting these big swings in weather conditions, right. even though the winters, most of the winter is perceptibly milder. Um, so right. that winter hardiness is important. Um, late bud break is really important too, because uh, kind of one of the bad traits that wild riparian grape brings to um, genetically is they like to start growing really early in the spring, mm. and they tend to be uh, frost prone. Um, ah. And some of the hybrids that have been developed with um, maybe have more of an influence of that riparia um, have the same problem. Like Marquette is prone to that. Um, right. Um, so. Uh, the late bud break is is really important, and and I have put some effort specifically on that problem. I think I, I, I think what I have in the name varieties is is pretty sufficient, um, you know, to be pretty pretty um, free of frost injury here. Um, and so those two things: winter hardiness, late bud break, uh, and then the wine quality, uh, which is what I kind of started out originally. I started out. Um, trying to breed for cold hardiness and and uh, and for uh, lower acidity in the berries and in the wine. And uh, um, now that I've used Petit Pearl and Crimson Pearl a lot um, in my crosses, and they bring that. And so now I have I have this all these seedlings out here, and um, I hardly ever come across a seedling that has acidity problems. Um, so I, so. My challenge now is I think I've kind of got the quality I want, and my my challenge is to keep that quality um, over the generations I breed now, um, but start layering on some of these other desirable characteristics. Right. Well, I'm all right. Well, now I, I how many varieties have you developed that are currently you know out there in the world? Um, three: um, Petite Pearl, okay. Crimson Pearl, and Verona. Okay, and you have a couple trial varieties. It looks like on your website. Yep, yep. Um, uh, TP one dash one dash twelve has been patented and and certified virus free at at UC Davis, and it's really ready to go. Um, we just had some logistics problems getting it into production, uh, or okay. it could be out there. Um, it is it is sold commercially in Canada, oddly enough, because they imported it from. Uh, from the foundation plant service um, uh, before we started having some of the logistics problems. So they've, they've actually had it <laughs> longer than the nurseries here. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I know that you, uh, you, you have an agreement with a Washington nursery for uh, to, to get through our sort of West coast quarantining. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Inland okay. desert nursery. Uh, they, they have all four inland desert nursery. Right? Yeah, they have That's all four great. of those. And, uh, have them in production, and uh, you can actually you can actually buy small quantities of those right now. Uh, but yeah, they're going to be they're going to be my uh, 
my certified um, nursery uh, for so people from California um, want to want to buy vines. Um, those vines are will be certified to ship into California. Right. Yeah, I, I looked into that. I I think I'm on their mailing list because <laughs> that's the kind of guy I am. Um, <laughs> you are. It's impressive that you know about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it reveals a little bit about me. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm looking at. Yeah, I just want to state your website, uh, Plocker Vines, right? Plockervines.com. Mm-hmm. Tom Plocker. Uh, it not Plotcher. Uh, it's, it's it looks pl- like that. It looks yeah. like that, but, but um, P-L-O-C-H-E-R vines.com. And you have that, uh, the TP1-1-12, um, and it's just like a mouthwatering sort of one of those kind of, you see that cluster and you're just like, oh my gosh, please give me that. It is a, uh, <laughs> it is a weird grape. It's really beefy. It gets, um, uh, you know, some some grape clusters some varieties produce clusters that have these like little sub bunches off to the up up off the sides and we call those shoulders yeah uh, and usually the most common thing is for a cluster a variety to produce a cluster with maybe one shoulder and this one will actually actually have up to four shoulders on it sometimes which is <laughs> yeah it's just ridiculous it looks like it's all shoulder it, it's it, just it like is. <laughs> it is. there are more berries in the shoulders than in the main part of the that's uh, it's amazing i mean it just looks like a a giant you know yeah just an explosion like a like four clusters stuck together in one Um, really (laughs) which is amazing and i I actually have a a bottle of petite pearl um here in my cellar from vermont from uh from montpelier vineyards oh my gosh i think are winning awards with their um with their yeah, the certified organic. Uh, they have an organic winery, organic vineyards, and uh, are making some really fun stuff with your petite pearl. And uh, they sent me a bottle, which I'm I'm going to taste very soon. So I wish I'd, I if I'd thought of it, I would have tasted it <laughs> by now. Um, but I'm I have a busy drinking schedule, as it turns out. <laughs> schedule my drinking. It's hard work, you know. What <laughs> it is, it is. Um. Yeah, so can you do? You, could you give a little description of of these varieties? What people could expect? Uh, I, I mean, I'm just thinking. You know, it's not. It hasn't caught on on the West Coast to grow hybrids like these because you know, obviously, you're you're growing them with this idea of cold hardiness, which we really have no need for out here. However, if we planted one of these in California, this would basically be a no spray grape for us. As, oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we would just like plant it, and if you plant it in the right spot, you just have to train it, and that's about it. I mean, yeah, these this would and talk about some of the, like the wine that you're getting out of these these varieties. Um, well, um, I mean, hybrids. I hate even using that term because people think that all hybrids are going to taste like Concord grapes, but uh, right, like Logan David right. or something. But um, the, you know, these don't these don't have any of that uh, because they're um, you know the, I mean they do have they do have some percent of of Labrasca genes, but um, you know it's probably back four or five generations ago. So there's like very right. very little of that. I mean none of that comes through in the wine um, right. anymore. Um, uh, and uh, you know they've all been bred to have um, you know rather low acidity. Um, uh, the crimson and petite especially 
um, if they're really ripened well, you know, they'll they'll have an acidity and pH really similar to vinifera grapes. Um, right. And yeah, it's but but it does um, well at least on the on the east on the east coast it it seems to retain relative to like what we would expect out here in hot climate um it, it seems to retain pretty decent acidity now do you think if it was grown in a hotter place it would lose even more like you'd get an even higher ph or is that genetically it's always going to have a slightly what i say this just to like when you can you calibrate what you mean by lower acidity oh yeah. <laughs> just like what does that mean ph or ta wise well uh, so, so we had we had a we had a really hot summer last year so we ended okay. up we ended up with three thousand degree days or something and we usually get you know 2500 or something wow so we actually saw what what really ripe grapes were um okay maybe for the first time um uh and so up in fargo um, my friend up in Fargo makes both Petit Pearl and Crimson Pearl. And, and his Crimson was, the, the total acidity at harvest was 0. 0.7. Uh, okay. And at bottling, it was, after mallow, it was 0. 0.65 or something, uh, which is right. really down there. You know, the pH was yeah. at harvest was like 3.5. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, and and if the pH rose, um, you know, um, through mallow, yeah. fermentation and during malolactic to a point where he, I th- it ended up with maybe 3.55 or 3.58. And he was thinking, oh, I wonder how stable this is going to be. Maybe I need to add some acid to it. Just so ironic uh-huh. to think uh, think for a right. winemaker here to contemplate adding acid to a wine to stabilize it. <laughs> the pH was too high. Yeah. Um, so Crimson will do that. I'm pretty sure if you grew it in California, you would get at least those numbers. <laughs> maybe they'd even Maybe they'd even be better. And Petit had a little more acid. I think there that was maybe maybe zero point zero point seven two or seven four at harvest, and pH was you know three point three point four five. Yeah, uh, and that's on a a very ripe year for you guys. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very ripe year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I I, I bring this up because there is this trend uh, now for you know sort of fresher, uh, more more acid driven wines out here in California rather than really? the big. You know, yeah, absolutely. Well, at least in in the urban centers, I mean, I, for sure, a lot of the stuff we export to the rest of the world is that you know, low, a higher pH, lower acid, you know, large red stuff. But mm-hmm. definitely in LA and San Francisco, with the natural wine, the rise of natural wine, uh, there's a, a lot of interest in, and especially in the growers, like the the younger generation of growers that I, I you know, kind of the people that I know and I'm familiar with are definitely looking for things that hold their acid you know we you know it's 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 tough to i mean a lot of what we end up doing is picking early but then you're you you might sacrifice some flavor development you know some phenolic ripeness and and so if if we had a variety that achieved phenolic ripeness while maintaining nice acidity you know 3.4 3.5 would be lovely you know (laughs) um at harvest especially you know with phenol you know here with the heat and everything that that's that's you know something that you know pinot does in cool climate here um and and that's still hard you know (laughs) you know it still might be a little higher than that um the ph so it's yeah i think that uh, there is i think and and the same people that are looking for that acidity are, are definitely more less interested in vinifera um so i yeah i just uh I, at least that's what i'm 
seeing in, in the niche, you know, that I, that I am aware of, um, more and more of that. And just because the market is looking at that and winemakers want to make that, that more asset driven style. Yeah, sure. So, so, uh, cool. I, and I, I know New York city likes that a lot too. So and, and these, these urban centers where natural wine is, is a bigger deal. Um, yeah. I think some of your, your type of grapes are, could very well catch on, um, especially in these warmer climates, if they hold the, that acid. That's, yeah. that's, oh, that's really interesting. I, yeah. So uh, I, I've always thought it was more, it was going to be more of a, uh, well, this, you know, this is different than a Cabernet or Merlot. It doesn't, it doesn't smell like a Cabernet or Merlot or, you know, it, it doesn't have as much tannin as a, as a, as a Cabernet. Um, uh, but it's interesting that a little, little bit more acidity may actually, may actually be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have. I, do I mean, have, I, I know. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying. I, I know personally for me, I'm, I'm in LA, and you know, we have a pretty maritime influenced thing, so it's not super hot where I am. But I definitely was looking for something that held its acid with a lot of heat, and so I, I ended up, you know, using Southern Italian varieties. You know, if I had waited a, a few months, my mind, you know, I started discovering all the hybrids and things that I probably would plant now and if i replant it's definitely going to be with you know i, I mean I, i'm actually really interested to try some of your varieties I, that's the, you know one of the reasons i have the the desert <laughs> the inland desert nursery on <laughs> on my radar um definitely looking to get some of that and and replant with that when and if that's necessary that would be awesome for them to find their way back to california where where they where they sat for five years to get certified and right yeah to washington right (laughs) yeah that's funny um and uh i i yeah it's i i i I mean a lot of what i i want to do with this podcast is bring attention to these options and just you know it's i mean i know right now i just sprayed this morning and i've been spraying you know on a site on a 10-day cycle all growing season and i still see powdery on my vines well, yeah, I mean, no, I'm using all organic stuff, so it's all preventative. Um, but you know, we haven't had a rain or anything like that since March, and I've been spraying since then. Uh, you know, every ten days with you know stylet oil, cinerate, organicide, and some sulfur on the vines that don't have grapes, the young ones that aren't holding grapes yet, just some sulfur. Um, and still find you know in the shadier, like, there's like one shadier part, and actually even not in the shadier part, I, I'm finding powdery on my on my canes oh my, my new canes and i'm just like i'm like man and i <laughs> um i just i'm like if only for the fact that i wouldn't need to spray like it's such a chore and i can't even imagine if i had a big vineyard this is just my you know little backyard front yard vineyard but if i had a big thing i i would seriously absolutely be hardcore doing the calculations of what that would mean to to plant hybrid and and uh bring that out here where it's just you know, it hasn't been seen, but yeah, man, it would save so much time and resources to, to, to not have to spray like that. I just, I just hate spraying too. Uh, it's just, yeah. Um, I just hate being out there with that mist blower blasting away and cloud of yeah. around me. And, um, you know, and I'm all geared up and all this hot stuff I got to put on so I don't inhale it or something. Right. I, I really yes. hate spraying. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, which is why. One of the reasons I only spray four times a year. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, that kind of shows that you, you, you know, with these varieties, you can get away with that even in a climate like yours where you have this massive mildew pressure and, 
uh, of multiple varieties. And uh, so that that's saying a lot. And out here where, you know, really, you know, we if you're in a bad area, you might have a, a little downy, but generally powdery is our main our main fun, fungus issue. Um, and that, I think, would just, these these don't even, they wouldn't even blink at powdery. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. Because I, I, uh, I, I, as I said, I've never seen powdery on them here uh, yeah. in all those years. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, this is this is great. I, I what what does the the future hold for Plocker vines? Um, well, i i have um, I have two really new selections that <clears throat> that um, uh, that I, I I'm going to get uh, I'm going to get patented and and um, and try to get into nursery production over the next five years. One of them is very similar to Petit Pearl, um, only it's. Uh, it ripens about two and a half weeks earlier, which is a, a really good thing for lots of places um, in the Midwest here, as well as, as New England, especially. Um, they're looking for earlier things, and it's a little bit hardier than Petit Pearl. Uh, and then the other one is um, um, a grape that makes really terrific wine. Uh, it's it, and it's really really on the low acid end, um, um, and it survived that 38 below zero winter up in that part of the vineyard. It's never had any win- winter injury on it. It's been through everything over seven years. Um, so I, that one just in general is going to be in, in kind of an advancement, I think, over for the winter hardiness part. The winter hardiness and keeping the good wine quality are part of this. Yeah, so those are the two. I also I, I started breeding grapes for white wine kind of late. Um and because I was working full time all those years, I, I thought I needed to just focus on one thing. So I focused right. on dry red wine. Okay. And yeah. Uh, so about I started breeding whites uh, all maybe seven or eight years ago, not very long. So I finally have I have, I have a, I don't know eight or nine selections, and um, I just propagated them up for second testing uh, for myself, and I sent some up to Fargo too to that place. Um, so we'll see. You know, we'll see how those do. Um, my goal with those was to, uh, I've been trying, what I would really like is, is a cold hardy, uh, version of Chardonnay, uh, cause all our cold mm. hardy whites are more, more Germanic style or more right. Blanc style. And, and, um, I really love on Oak Chardonnay. And yeah. So that's, so it's all, uh, most of my crosses have been, have been oriented toward that, um, and uh, so we'll see. I haven't done much winemaking with them yet. So, okay. So we'll see what happens with those. Uh, but something will probably be coming along eventually in in for a white uh, for one of those pans out. Okay. Uh, and I'm still doing crosses <laughs> too. Although this right. this is I think this is my last year that that uh, I'm going to do crosses because I'm 71 and um, you know this the pipeline is about 10 years long. So I thought I don't really want to be. <laughs> doing this when I'm in my 80s. So my wife convinced me right. it was probably a good time to stop, um, kind of wrap, <laughs> up, wrap up what you were working on and and stop. Yeah, you may thank yourself. Your, your future self may thank your current self in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, she said, but man, I, I imagine it's hard to give that up. It must be such a, you know, almost an obsession at this point, it, getting, it it's, finding these things. It's so hard. It's so hard to give it up. Um, uh, uh, she will allow me to do crosses if someone else grows the seedlings. She just doesn't want me to increase the seedlings anymore. <laughs> Got it. So one, Got of my, it. one of my really weird projects that I'm going to, I have 
have started to work on. Um, uh, so uh, my my brother-in-law li lives in Oaxaca, Mexico, and and he is a um, agave grower and a, and he runs a, a mezcal palenque. Um, oh, wow. He makes gourmet mezcal and ships it up to California <laughs> in Chicago. Of course, yeah, we drink a lot of it we here. Drink a lot me. of it in Los Angeles, <laughs> that's for sure. Yes, we do. Yep. Um, so uh, he and I started a small vineyard down there um, in near, uh, near Oaxaca City. Um, oh, wow. We have Syrah, Carignan, and Palomino, uh, all of which are supposed to be grapes that don't need much cold to go dormant for the winter. And mm. what we found is that um, their temperatures <laughs> in the fall and early winter um, are not cold enough to really make that happen. Uh, so they want to grow continuously, and they want to have two crops of grapes every year. Um, mm -hmm. and grapes will do that for a couple of years and then they just kind of run themselves into the ground. So we figured out yeah. a way to, to, to prune them so they only have one crop and, and make to make them go dormant, but it's not, um, it's not ideal. Um, so I'm going to, I am going to breed a grape for that part of Mexico, um, that, uh, has a super low, uh, cold requirement to go dormant. Gotcha. Um, and I have, I'm so lucky because, um, Bernie Prince at uh, at um, the uh, Foundation Plant Service at UC Davis. Just a quick correction here from Tom. Bernie Prince is a horticulturalist at the USDA National Clonal Germplasm Repository for Grapes at UC Davis, not the Foundation Plant Service. Um, um, has been nurturing along this this um, native grape that was collected near Oaxaca City about twenty five years ago. Um, and I think it's, I think it is the only, it's the only grape from that area that exists in a collection anywhere. So he sent me cuttings this spring and, uh, I have, I have six plants growing in big pots and they grew so much this year. I think if I'm lucky, they'll bloom and I'll be able to get yeah. a little bit of pollen. And I think I'm going to cross it with Syrah. And, uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah. I have Syrah growing in my front yard and yes, it is, it does not go dormant here in Los Angeles. So I can imagine down there, it's maybe even worse where I have to, what I do is, uh, I mean, it's, it's a small vineyard, so I can do this, but I, you know, I do like a long prune, like, you know, at 18 to 24 inch, almost like a hedge and then strip all the leaves off. Oh. And then that's, that's sort of like mid, you know, like right before the holidays, because it just or or over the holidays, I'd do it because I have time then. You know, mm -hmm. like a you know d like end of December basically, and then I'll do the, I wait to do the final prune until you know right before the buds push. Um, but that that initial that initial hedge and strip the leaves is how I have to sort of force dormancy here. Sure, sure. That's yeah. so I'm never there at that time. We always go down the first two weeks in January to visit. Um, so they, uh, they've usually, they've usually part of the part of the um, part of the cane goes dormant, but there's still a part that's growing on the end. Um, so what mm -hmm. we're doing is right. just cutting that part off, and then all we end up all all that's left is the part is the little part that has dormant buds on it. Um, right. And then you know a month later that stuff all grows and and it kind of kind of buds out at the same time. Uh, huh. But it would be really that's, nice that's, if you didn't have to worry about it if it just went dormant and started to grow again when it wanted to grow and it, everything, all the buds pushed at once. That would that would be ideal. Well, I mean, 
I think you might be onto something given the way the, the the direction of the global temperature is headed growing some hot season hot hot yes. winter varieties right yes. <laughs> you're just gonna have to flip everything you've done on its head i know i know it's so start it's so odd it's to get wrap my mind around this that the opposite <laughs> problem you know yeah um, that's that's really interesting i i mean honestly i'd be interested here in la for something like that that sounds yeah like just what i need well that's you could be a test grower <laughs> i'd be happy to <laughs> let me know keep me posted okay. yeah you surely will <laughs> well tom thank you so much this is really just uh, super informative and it's great to hear you know about everything that you're doing and the potential of of what you've uh, created and what, what this process can do for for wine in general thank you so much for sharing oh well thank you so much for uh for inviting me to join you today um absolutely uh, i i you know learned a lot about uh the california wine scene too here and and what how that's changing so that's really valuable to me great yeah no i i hope uh it, it, there's definitely a a future for your kind of hybrids in California. I mean, I think there is and hope there is. Um, and maybe some of the ones you're working on in Oaxaca, maybe even more realistically because yeah. of yeah. Our, our, our heating up here. If you could, if you could breed a super drought tolerant, you know, like a, a very vigorous and productive vine that only that that does that on five inches of winter rain you might <laughs> you, you might have a gold mine on your hand you might have a gold mine yeah yeah so i i don't know about this this native grape from uh, oaxaca i it's called vitis blancoii um Ooh. um it's it's really dry um you know around oaxaca yeah it, it may have some drought tolerance to it too. Um, Fantastic! Uh, it yeah, hasn't really been tested here, but um, uh, it, it could be. But and it's so, it's so it's such an obscure species; no one really knows very much about it. Um, right. I didn't even know. I actually, honestly, I don't know whether it's a male or female. Whether the flowers are male or female on it, but right. maybe I'll find out next spring. <laughs> I'll, I'll either need to find a Syrah vine to pollinate, or I'll need some Syrah pollen to pollinate the flowers on the wild grape if, it's, if the flowers are female. Got it. Yeah, and then I might well, come to you for pollen. I was gonna say, you know, I, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now I'm gonna think about that <laughs> this spring. I'm gonna be looking at those flowers a little more closely. Yeah, yeah, um, we could collaborate on that. Well, fantastic. No, I, I please let's keep in touch, and I, I really do hope that you know. Best of luck with that. I think that you know really is a need. You know, I, I think there's definitely some big changes are going to have to be you know they're going to be forced upon the wine industry that's reliant on pure vinifera at this point yeah. um, because it's just not going to be thriving uh for much longer yeah right. um so i think what you're doing is uh going to be very helpful and useful <laughs> going forward um well uh, thanks again is there did you have any closing words or any any other i, I mentioned your your website is there anything else that you'd like to promote or oh talk um, about I, well, I just had I just had one uh, kind of a kind of a big event uh, happen back in I think it was March. Um, uh, so um, one of the wineries that makes really good Petit Pearl is uh, Carboy Winery in Palisade, Colorado, and, and they, okay. where they get Petit Pearl really right there too. Um, yeah. So they they entered entered their 2018 Petit Pearl in the LA Invitational uh, Wine Competition uh, this spring. 
um, and they didn't enter it in the hybrid category. They entered it, entered it in the in the there's a category that's um, other wine grapes, something like right. That. So I think it's kind of um, more obscure vinifera varieties. And right and anyway, they got a 92 score, 92, and a gold medal. Um, ah, fantastic! And uh, they had yeah. made some of their Italian vinifera varieties in that category, and and it scored higher than those. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic so I yeah i i i know that um uh, elaine chalk and brown from she's you know she's a, a journalist out here and a, a wine a wine promoter I, mean, I don't know if promoter is the right word i don't know what she is but she's a, a communicator a, a storyteller of of the wine industry um and she did a big write-up on the northeast and i know that the some of the wines made from your petite Pearl by Montpelier Vineyards. There was a sparkling rosé, and their red got uh, her highest marks, you know, and and very uh, glowing reviews for really? wow. for them. Yeah. So, and then I think they just they won another medal or something like that at at another competition they've been in. Uh, so yeah, it's it's doing well out there in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Well done. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very exciting because I, I especially it was exciting that it, it competed head to head with vinifera wines from California. And yeah, that's that's forced the... to taste those blind. Um, um, you know, the judges scored it, scored it pretty high. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I always thought that that's really what hybrids need as a, our own sort of judgment of Paris where we sneak in, you know, some comparative, uh, like you know, like the, the the grand cabernets of Napa against some of you know some something that's posing as a cabernet and <laughs> see who wins. You know what I mean? And then do the reveal and da da. You know, and then yeah, that that might do the trick. I think. I think we. I'm just putting that out there for anybody that wants to organize that. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Absolutely. I. Uh, that. Yeah. So it was it was that kind of moment for me. I. You know that that told me that. After all these years, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe it has finally arrived. It's maybe it's the time. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely think it is. I, I yeah, I, for sure. And uh, well, thanks for thanks for getting us there. You know, <laughs> um, and and thanks for this conversation. It's really been great talking to you. Yeah. I, really, I appreciate your time and all this knowledge that you shared. It's been, I mean, just brand new stuff for me as well that I I can't wait to actually implement. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Adam. It's been fun. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did, please do leave a review for the Organic Wine Podcast. It helps a lot, and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can, which your review will help do. Thanks so much.